All right, if you would, grab a Bible. You can pull out your phone, whatever you need. Grab a Bible, pull up. Um, we're going to start in the beginning with our origins, Genesis chapter 1. We are talking about creation this morning, and so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. Where is Genesis in the Bible? Just go to the very beginning, okay? Go to the very beginning. Old Testament, first book of the Bible, first chapter. We'll start with the first verse. That's where we're going to be today. All right, in the 1950s, as many of you know, some of you may not, C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, one of those being the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Uh, many of you have read this, perhaps more have seen the movie. Um, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, it's about four children who in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe find themselves in a mythical land called Narnia. And they find themselves in Narnia, and it is, well, at first it seems, you know, like pleasant Christmas time. But what they learn in Narnia is that Narnia has been in the midst of a bleak, dark winter. It's not a Christmassy winter. It is a bleak, dark winter um, ruled by the white witch. Okay, perhaps more than ever, us Texans now finally relate to the illustration due to last year, right? Before we'd be like, winter, what's so bad about winter, you know? Um, now we get it, okay? Now we get it. There's chance of cold weather, and we're like, close the schools. Everybody stay alive. All right. Um, Narnia is in the middle of a bleak, dark winter ruled by the white, which the creatures of Narnia, um, they don't know in this time when these children show up, they don't know a cool walk in the middle of the day. They don't know uh, uh, laying down in rich green pastures to enjoy the sunlight. They just know this oppressive winter. And as they learn this legend um, that, um, that there once was spring, there once was a time of life and goodness throughout the land of Narnia. And as they learn this legend, they begin looking forward. They learn that spring has actually once been in Narnia. It was once, once green. You could take a, a walk in the middle of the day. They learn that, and as they learn that, they begin looking forward to the day when perhaps springtime might break the winter. And if you know the story, they begin looking forward to when King Aslan, the great lion, is going to restore springtime in Narnia. They start looking for, will the bleak, dark winter break under Aslan's power? Again, is that coming? We know, we know the bleak darkness of winter in our life. We know the bleak darkness of the winter of sin and death and decay and badness all around us. I don't have to go into too much detail um, about the bleakness of abortion and 62 million babies, give or take, aborted since the 70s. I don't have to go into too much detail about how today a child can reasonably expect to be raised in a home without a father. That can be a reasonable expectation for many children today. I don't have to go into too much detail about how around 40% of American children will go to sleep tonight in a home without a dad. We know the bleakness of winter all around us. I don't have to go into too much detail about how the pornography industry is worth billions. We know the winter of sin 
and death and decay all around us. And I don't need to go into too much detail to prove the winter that we live in in your own life, the bleak darkness of the shame you feel for your sin, the bleakness of feeling like you can't beat sin in your life or you can't beat this one particular sin in your life, the bleak darkness of feeling like a a bad dad or a bad mom, the darkness of feeling like you can't save your kids, the darkness of feeling like I'm just bored with God. I barely made it to church this morning. I don't have to go into too much detail. We know. We know this kind of winter. And to make matters worse, in the middle of this winter of sin and darkness and death and decay, we wonder if there's any meaning to it at all. Is there any purpose for any of this? Is there any significance here? Is there any meaning here? The scientific community is trying to explain our origins, but they are failing miserably. They can't seem to explain to us why the world is designed the way it is and why it feels purposeful, why we have these echoes in us that perhaps one time it was springtime. Is there any meaning to any of this? Is the legend of springtime true? So we wonder, has it always been like this? Has life always been, has Waco always been like this? Has the world always been like this? Has it always been winter? Has it always been sin, death, decay, and badness all around us? Or is the legend of springtime long ago true? Is it true? And perhaps more importantly, will springtime be restored again? Will it be restored again? Will this winter that we know break to the power of spring? Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account that the Bible begins with, is the true legend of springtime. It's the true legend of springtime written for people in the bleak darkness of winter, written for people wondering, was it always winter and will it always be winter? So let's stand and let's read this creation account from Genesis 1 together. This is Genesis 1. We're going to read the whole chapter uh, together as we read this account of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the heavens and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. Father, we pray that you would send forth your word, that it wouldn't return void, that you would speak to us, that you'd reveal yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Genesis was originally written for God's people, um, probably for um, either God's people as they had just come out of Egypt and slavery in Egypt and as they are wandering around in the wilderness, or perhaps their kids, Okay, so the people of God receiving this book originally, they had known winter's bleakness for a long time. For hundreds of years, they had been uh, growing up in Egypt, um, growing as a people and under slavery in Egypt. It was a bleak winter for them as slaves in Egypt. They were in a foreign land under a foreign oppressive power. It was a dark winter. And they had probably in this time not only heard this account of creation as it was passed down, but probably competing accounts of creation as well, which we'll look at in a minute. Competing accounts of creation where you have wars of gods creating the earth, and then those gods being so annoyed with you and me that they just said, flood the whole thing. 
I'm sick of hearing about these people and I'm sick of hearing their noise. They probably heard competing creation accounts. And I would expect them, the people who received Genesis, Israel who received Genesis, I would expect them to wonder along with us, has it always been winter? Has it always been like this? Do we have a good God over us? Is there meaning to this chaotic darkness in which we live? Has it been springtime before and will it be springtime again? And then they receive Genesis, the true legend of springtime. And look at how Genesis starts in verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do we really have a God over us? Or is Pharaoh God Or is this material world God? Is the sun God? Or is the moon God? Is this material world self-creating? There once was nothing, and then all of a sudden, nothing created something. What is the truth about our origins? Are we the product of a random explosion? We are just stardust floating around, uh, the product of, of random chance and time, no meaning, no purpose, just a collection of cells that have to suffer through a dark winter on our way to absolute nothingness all the while frustrated by the reality that we have this sense of something bigger out there, of purpose, of meaning, of morality, of design, of intelligence. Where did all this come from if it's all just random? Is that the reality? No. The first verse of the Bible changes everything for Israel, and it changes everything for you and me. Because in the beginning, God, In the beginning, God, with the first verse of the Bible, life in the midst of dark, bleak winter is infused, is shown to be full of purpose and meaning and significance because it all comes from God. It's all made by a creator. Some designer is over it all. We can now, with the first verse of the Bible, begin to explain things like our sense of meaning in life, our hunger for truth, our hunger for purpose, our our, um, deeply embedded sense of right and wrong, this sense of eternity that we have on our hearts. The first verse of the Bible says, yeah, you you have a way to explain all of that now. So verse one, in the beginning, God goes on to say, created the heavens and the earth. God is before everything. He is before everything, above everything, the creator of all things. And he creates, as you have maybe heard, ex nihilo, from nothing, out of nothing. Not pre-existent matter, eternal matter that then God steps in to mess with. No, there is just in the beginning, there is what? God. And then he sets out to create all things. We affirmed it a minute ago that the work of creation is God's making all things of nothing. And this is exactly where the scientific community cannot figure things out. One Nobel Prize winning physicist says this, the idea of spontaneous generation where something suddenly by itself emerges out of nothing is scientifically untenable. Can't support the argument. So what's his solution? 
He says, we, we now must speak of gradual, spontaneous generation. So we can't figure out, we can't possibly argue or explain that there was something, there was nothing, and then all of a sudden there was something. So let's just add billions of years, and that will make sense of it. It can't just happen quickly, but something could come out of nothing over a long time. Why? Because science. Okay. Robert Jastrow, director of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration's Goddard Institute, writes of our origins, he says this, at this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. The scientist has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. The highest peak meaning, I'm going to explain where it's all from. He's about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. In other words, we told you. We told you that in the beginning, God. So what does this God do? Verse 2. Look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Think about what this says here, and think about it as it is said to a people living in the midst of a chaotic winter of darkness. The Spirit of God is in the business of taking formless voids, formless, dark voids, bleak winters, and making them something good and beautiful. As he hovered over the face of the waters in the process of creation. Perhaps here Israelites would remember, I remember when there was this dark sea before us that spelled out our doom as the Egyptians came out of us, and then all of a sudden, God parted the waters, and we passed through on dry land. The text continues, look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Here, we need to remember that the Israelites were perhaps familiar, as I said, with alternative creation myths about how we were created. One Mesopotamian myth said that creation came out of this war of the gods, uh, that the goddess of chaos had to be beaten and defeated in order to create this orderly creation. Or in Egypt itself, they believed in the, the, the water god, this pre-existent water god, Nun, and then another god, Ta. And, and, and um, the, uh, Ta had to use the water god to create. Okay? It's this polytheistic, multiple gods, sometimes at war with one another to bring about creation. Perhaps they were familiar with how people worshipped the sun. That big ball of fire out there is our god. And also the moon, these two great lights, these are our gods. And what's common in all of these myths is that you have multiple gods in a struggle of some kind. They're in a struggle of some kind. Um, in a lot of them, creation itself is God. And then they go on to just tolerate human beings. Humans are annoying to them. And so then you get other flood myths and accounts of the flood 
as these gods wipe out those who just so annoy them. Those accounts, these competing creation accounts, reflect exactly how we would think creation happened. We often feel out of control. We often feel at war. We feel life is this dark, bleak winter as it is. And so, of course, that's how it all started. Of course, that's how things must have been created, right? In some kind of out-of-control war of darkness. And so, of course, it must have just started bleak in the beginning, as it is now. But what does the true legend here say? It says, you worship the waters, you worship the sun, you worship the moon, but I made them all. The God who has rescued you from Egypt, I am the creator God, the one true living God, and I am over all of those things. I am above all of those things. I am before all of those things. I created them all, including Pharaoh, including whoever in your life you think is God today. Look how hilarious verse 16 is. Remember that some worshiped the sun and the moon. Look at verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16. Look how it treats the sun and the moon. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. This is funny because with a people who worship the sun and the moon, the text doesn't even name them. Because, oh, the sun and the moon just lights. Just can flick them on, flick them off if I want to. Just lights. And then look how it adds at the end of verse 16, and the stars. Has there ever been an understatement? And the stars. Created all, and the stars. Like the billions and countless stars and galaxies, those two. I made it all. I'm before it all. Can consider, consider with what ease God made it all too just by speaking. I mean, he's doing all this with such ease. Seven times we are told in this account that God creates by speaking. What easy work. Just a mere word, and he gets it done, and he brings it all to being. We affirmed it a minute ago. The work of creation is God making all things of nothing by the word of his power. No deliberation between the gods. No war, no struggle, no moon. Is it okay if we create something else? None of that. The one living true God speaking a word, nobody deliberates, nobody argues back. Again and again, he speaks, and it was so, and it was so. Utter control, utter sovereignty, easy work, no energy lost, no sweat, no big deal, just a word. Now, what is said in verse 4 is stunning to those of us who live in winter. Look at verse 4 as we continue on with the first verses. Verse 4, and it says, After he creates light, and God saw that the light was good. We, especially if you've grown up in the church and you've heard this account and you hear that God speaks and it's good, God speaks and it's good, this kind of falls on deaf ears. We're so used to it. But think about this. Everywhere we look, death, winter, darkness, decay, badness. And then all of a sudden, we hear of creation here again and again and again being called the opposite of what we experience on a day-to-day -day basis. Good. Narnia-like. Creation created by a good God. 
a kind God, a benevolent God. Seven times we are told that God saw his creation and it was good. And then on the seventh time, scan down to verse 31. Look at what is said. It is unmistakably emphasized in verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, pause, don't miss this, pay attention. If you miss the other six times, don't miss this one. Behold, it was very good. It was good. The legend of springtime is true. We wonder, has it ever been spring? Has the grass ever been green? Has it ever been good? And Genesis says, yes, again and again, it's been good. It was good. It was good. It was very good. And honestly, we go, I knew it. I knew it. I knew that it had to have been spring once before, that it wasn't always like this. Our God is not the author of this winter we are in. We are. Next week, we're talking fall of man. We'll talk about how we authored this winter. But God, according to Genesis, is not the author of this winter of sin and death. He's the author of springtime goodness, life and light and cool walks in the middle of the day. Now, we read, we're not going to go through it every single verse by verse, but in Genesis 1, God creates everything. He creates the realms of the earth and the sky and the waters, and then he begins to fill those realms with creatures to live in those realms, fish and all sorts of creatures. But what happens at the end in verse 26 puts his goodness, his fatherly goodness and love on blast. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. God in the end of creation creates his prized creation, you and me. His prized creation that he loves and delights in and he creates us in his image. As we said, God creates man, male and female after his image in knowledge, righteousness, in holiness. We are unlike all of creation. We have a knowledge about us, the ability to worship God, have relationship with God, righteousness and holiness unlike all of creation, made in his image, showing forth to the cosmos something of what God is like. Doing that unlike the rest of creation. And then in... What is totally stunning here is that at the end of creation, he creates man and then he says, the world is yours. Look what I just created for you. First Timothy says it like this, that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God creates man and woman and then gives them the authority to rule the cosmos to rule the cosmos under his authority, to be these little L lords, to have dominion, to subdue it, to be like God in that way. 
and to be this benevolent ruler, this kind, tender ruler over God's creation, not as a cruel taskmaster, but, a, but like our loving Father, who is good and kind. And if this whole reality right here, if this whole reality doesn't seem like an impossible myth already, we are told this in verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I mean, we've read some stunning things already. And then it says they were naked, but they weren't ashamed. I'm not sure if it gets more Narnia-like than a naked, cool walk in the middle of the day with your spouse. My jokes are not landing very well this morning, I feel, okay? All right, with creation done in six days, what is next? With creation done in six days, what is next? Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. We know that God is not tired. He is not tired at this point. He, he creates with ease. He loses no energy. He doesn't sweat in the process. He loses no power in the process. He's not tired. And we know that he's not resting, taking a quick nap to recharge for another creation cycle. There's not day eight and God continues to create all these sorts of new things. The true legend of creation here stops in one sense. It stops on day seven. It stops with this unending holy rest. God rests. His work is complete. His work is done. And so he rests, unending springtime, unending holy rest in springtime, unending cool walks in the middle of the day, unending joy in God's presence, unending life with God in bliss and in springtime. No shame, no guilt, no fear, just perfect life with God taking care of his creation with joyous ease. Unending springtime. The legend of springtime long ago is true. It's true. But how distant does this seem from us? I mean, it can feel even to us like Narnia. How distant does this feel to us? After all, it lasts only two chapters. It lasts two chapters. And then winter sets in. And so now we wonder, will springtime be restored again? Will the power of winter, of badness and sin and death, break to a new springtime? Will there be a new heavens and a new earth one day? Or does winter get the last word? Here's the answer. Only if God gets to work again. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, and winter will break if God gets to work again. We authored a winter of sin that we can't break. We can't author our salvation and our redemption. Salvation and redemption in springtime will come if God gets to work again. And then sure enough, one day, the word shows up. John 1, 1 says that the word, the word who was with God and the word who is God, through whom all things were made, 
came as a light shining in wintry darkness. In the creation account, God creates by speaking, and then sure enough, the word himself, through whom everything is made, shows up. And Jesus said, I came to do the work of the Father. And then on the cross, at the completion of his work, what does he say? It is finished. God got to work, and God completed his work again. And after making purifications for sins, Hebrews says, Jesus sat down at the right hand of majesty. Work is done. And then the Spirit of God applies the work of Jesus to you and me in the same way that he created the cosmos. Listen to how 2 Corinthians 4 speaks of how you were saved. Paul says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. The God who said, let it be, and it was so. In the very beginning, Paul says, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's at it again. God is at it again. Speaking life. Speaking, and it was so. The same God who said, let light shine has come to you, and he has spoken that word to bring you the gospel, to make light shine in your dark heart and in my dark heart. God comes to those dead in the power of sin, and he says, let there be light, and there is light. And Hebrews 4 says that we who have believed enter God's rest. Come to me, all you who are weary, and you will find rest for your souls. For believers, the power of winter has been broken. For those who have received Jesus, the power of winter in your own life has been broken. And take heart this morning, because the power of winter in the cosmos has been broken, and winter is passing, and springtime will come again. All right, let's pray.